you like to know how to make better decisions for your business, your people, or yourself? Do you want to recognize when you make errors of judgment that cause the quality of your decisions to drop, and when you are moving away from, not closer to, your goal? Welcome to Because There's More with Laura Ellis. For the next hour, Laura and her guests will share experiences and insights that will challenge and stretch your thinking, help you recognize your biases, and ultimately guide you towards more predictable and accurate decisions. You'll walk away from this show feeling better informed, more inspired, and a lot more confident about your next big decision. Now, here's your host, Laura Ellis. Hello, I'm Laura Ellis, and this is Because There's More, the show that takes a closer look at decision-making. I'm delighted to be here with you today, particularly because today I'm hosting someone I used to work with and whose inspiring energy and limitless talent I have come to know firsthand. Her name is Leanne Davey, and of the many facets of leadership she's helped numerous executives with, over the last years, she has focused her attention, expertise, and talents on helping leadership teams perform more effectively in order to transform, transform themselves and their business. Welcome to the show, Leanne. Thanks so much, Laura. It's great to be here. I know. I, I am thrilled. It's uh, it's funny how things kind of develop. People go their own ways, and then they come together uh, at points like like this. I'm very excited to have you here. I tend to focus on this show, as you know, on decision making. Um, which makes today very uh, unique and a premiere because you are the first guest I'm talking to about uh, group decision-making because of your work with teams. So what took you down that road in the first place? What made you focus on on teams? Yeah, it's it's a great story, and it actually goes way, way back for me. So when I was a little kid... I used to love any television show that showed the inner workings of a factory. And I used to love to watch how assembly lines worked and and how the machinery actually converted something. The one I really remember watching as a little kid is how you make crayons. And as my, as my career moved on, as I, as I went through school, it became clear to me that the manufacturing economy was sort of moving out, and and in its place was this new machinery of the knowledge economy, which is really the team. And so in graduate school, I got an opportunity to sort of blend these two things together when I did my doctoral work looking at innovation and and high-tech new product development. But what I looked at was actually how does that play out from a team dynamic perspective. So it it was a very early start to being very interested in uh, people in the workplace and how they work together. And that's carried me through about 20 years now in, in the consulting business. Wow, fascinating. And and I know that you have uh, amazing life stories because you have done so much. Uh, before we go any further, let me just uh, read some of the highlights from your very impressive uh, bio. So I'll start by saying that your mission is to change the world one team at the time. And by Combining a keen expertise in strategy with deep insight into group dynamics, you are transforming organization from the executive team down. Specifically, 
Lee, you work to habilitate teams that have become toxic, but you also work with healthy teams that want to take their performance to the next level. In fact, when you and I work together, uh, to meet the ne- needs of a broader audience during your role as a vice president of Lee Hecht Harrison Knightsbridge Leadership Solutions and the lead team effectiveness, you develop the highly successful vital teams and team inoculation programs. And those programs were created to allow organizations to certify internal resources to deliver the programs you design. Of course, the transformative results of your work have positioned you to be a very sought-after advisor by executives at Summit North America's leading financial services, consumer goods, high-tech, and healthcare organizations. You also are a very dynamic keynote speaker, and I can attest to that because I heard you talk. And you take your messages about vital teams to leaders at conferences and management retreats. In addition, you write an ongoing blog on team effectiveness, uh, a a blog that is published in trade and academic uh, journals. Your first book, Leadership Solutions, was co-authored with David Weiss and Vince Molinaro and released in fall 2007. Your new book, which is a New York Times bestseller, was released in fall 2013 and is entitled You First, Inspire Your Team to Grow Up, Get Along and Get Stuff Done, which inspired the title of today's show. Last year, teaming up with your husband, you founded Three Co's Inc., which you describe as a small firm with a big vision to change the way people communicate, connect, and contribute so they can achieve amazing things together. And of course, I know, and uh, now the, the listeners will know, you also are a very charitable person. So your organization also gives one day per month to a worthy not non-profit organization nominated by your clients and community. Among other work, you have also served on the executive team of the Canadian Society for Industrial Organizational Psychology and as an evaluator for the Psychologically Healthy Workplace uh, Awards. And until very recently, you were a member of the Board of Trustees of the Psychology Foundation and the chair of the Foundation's Diversity in Action Project, promoting mental health in immigrant communities. And I know that to be something very dear to your heart. You hold a PhD in industrial psychology from the University of Waterloo. You are happily married with two young daughters who are now going through dancing competitions. (laughs) There is so much there. So I know that by the end of the show, I'm going to feel like, oh, my God, I wish I had another hour or two. (laughs) But but today, let's focus on your work on the teams and and talk more about the things that are included in, in, in the book. Um, so you told us uh, how you started to, um, you know, to work and be fascinated the work um, about the work teams do. What were some of the insights that you developed that you felt it's so important for you to to share with others? And how did you know this is going to become an important topic for businesses? 
There's a couple of things that have really um, become clear to me over my years in working with teens. The first one is going to sound silly, but it's, it's very true, which is that most teams have no idea why they're a team. So an executive team in an organization, when I ask them, all right, why are you a team? They sort of look around at each other and shrug their shoulders and say, well, you know, we all report to the CEO or, you know, there's always been an executive team here or, you know, we meet Tuesdays at 2 o'clock. And really very, very, very few teams have a clear answer as to what they need to accomplish that they can only accomplish as a team. So that's sort of the first insight is that there's significant work to do to help uh, get people aligned around the purpose of the team and how they need to behave in order to fulfill that mandate. So that's the first one. So, uh, you know, a big part of what uh, what we do at Freecos is make sure that, that teams are aligned to what does the customer need, what's changing in the environment, what is the organization trying to accomplish, and, and get that all uh, turned into uh, a mandate for the team and then role clarity for the members. So that's the first piece. The second piece then would be that there are team dynamics that support the execution of a team mandate and team dynamics that really constrain it or, uh, or cause significant dysfunction. And uh, I think over the last two years, my attention and energy has been disproportionately placed around helping teams have conflict more effectively. So most teams, part of their mandate is to innovate, to create growth, to mitigate risk, and all of those things require a healthy level of conflict that the vast majority of teams are really poor at. They avoid conflict, they suppress it, it becomes passive-aggressive, they wait till it erupts and then becomes very harmful. Um, So those are the two pieces of the puzzle. Help a team to understand what its role is, what its mandate is, and get them aligned around that. And then build a a team dynamic, a productive team dynamic that that supports the execution of that mandate, particularly uh, by building skills and changing the mindset around conflict. That's fascinating. You said that uh, your time has been invested disproportionately on uh, teams that uh, are not functioning effectively. Any insight to what may be causing that? What's making it uh, so difficult for team to teams to uh, work together? And you may have answered part of that, but <clears throat> yeah, at the highest level. And, you know, this is something that so many executives now understand and acknowledge but can do nothing about. At the highest level, it's that our publicly traded companies have become so focused on quarterly results. uh, And that is driving a lot of behavior that really detracts from long-term value in the organization. Um, So I think that's one of the most important things. And there's a a new move afoot, you know, more and more companies now taking themselves private, moving to different ownership structures away from publicly traded uh, so that they can make better longer-term decisions uh, in in creating value. Um, So if you take that uh, and then add the pace of change in the environment the, um, I think one of the other really fascinating strategic trends is the extent to which the sharing economy 
and, and shifts in how our economy works are making capital less important than it used to be. So it used to be a few big players that had sufficient capital to invest to do exciting things um, really had huge barriers to entry that prohibited uh, the little guys. Um, today, if you look at um, the examples that get cited all the time, the world's largest um, taxi company and the world's largest hotel company, neither of whom uh, have capital or own cars or, or own hotels, in, in that being Uber and Airbnb. So all of a sudden, these executive teams that had a little bit of breathing room now have none. Disruption is uh, coming from everywhere. The, the small organization, in many ways, has competitive advantage. So it's a very, very interesting time that's making, uh, at least at the top, it's making decision-making uh, extremely challenging. Um, that puts tremendous pressure on teams to, uh, to sort of live in the moment, which is not great for decision-making. Um, and that has a huge impact on um, the dynamics, the pressures, the, um, the, the conflict and tensions among members of the team, all those sorts of things. So it is, to be fair, it's a very, very difficult time to be a leader in an organization. It's a very difficult time to be a member of a leadership team. And that's, uh, that's what most of my clients are living with right now. Yeah. And, you know, I'm listening to you and so many thoughts come into my mind. So firstly, I couldn't agree more. We live through such an amazing period of time and I'm experiencing and I'm sure you are, too, as a um, owner of a business. I, I often uh, have access to the same things that large organizations had before. Uh, and, and you can make an appearance of being a large organization ju just by the resources that you have. Yes. To, to grow. Uh, on the other hand, I was thinking um, when you said that uh, so much of the work of executive teams is focused on results and, and on the financial, uh, just very briefly, it reminded me of a study in uh, uh, decision making that found that people primed by money, even when they're exposed to a dollar sign on, the, on their computer screen, um, what Experiments found repeatedly is that uh, people are less likely to work well together. They're more self-centered. They're more egotistical, less likely to take direction. So um, I think at, at even the, at the subconscious level, this focus on money and results causes behaviors that we're not even aware of. Very fascinating. So how would you describe your approach? I, I know that in, in the opening of your book, you say, I can't fix a team. So help us understand more. What do you mean by that? <laughs> yeah, so that's a, a really important idea. And I think so many people uh, make the first phone call to Three Co's and think that um, somehow we have a magic wand that we can wave and uh, just make their team better. And, of course, nothing that anyone from the outside does is truly going to transform a team. But instead, what really changes a team is one person deciding that they are no longer going to tolerate bad behavior and uh, changing their behavior. And that change in their own behavior and accountability for how they show up inspires a different level of 
um, performance and a different mindset among the rest of the people on the team. So if the only thing that can actually change a team is the team members changing their own behavior, then our approach is uh, to set up a process that puts new information in front of them that inspires them to actually make that choice. So that's what I focus very much on is, um, you know, Three Coast has built this process that uh, gives team members new information, makes them more reflective, helps them see opportunities to change their own behavior for the better. That's excellent. And um, it's, we're going to talk more. I, I, I looked at the time and I'm thinking, oh, my God, we only have two minutes till the first break. So I'm telling you, by the end of the show, I'm going to want to have another hour. Uh, but I like to come back after the break and, and focus more uh, on the book because uh, and, and the approach, of course, we'll talk about your organization. But um, Take us through the book. One of the things that I've always admired um, about you, and there are many things, um, is the fact that in with so much experience and so much expertise, one of your talents is to make the world very easily understood by others. So, you know, in spite of years of consulting and PhD and books written, your language is very clear, is very straightforward. It, it resonates with people. It also resonated uh, with me as a colleague. And I know that it resonates with clients. So I can't wait to talk more. Um, about the book because I love the way you describe the different teams and the different challenges that you come you've come across and I know that uh, you have some amazing stories to to share so but for now we're gonna um, uh, take a small break uh, don't go away we'll be back with Leanne to talk more about teams and what uh, approach her and her organization have developed to actually help teams become more effective. So don't go away. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings of the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our wall. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Are you a CEO, a board director, or an entrepreneur looking to have more control over the future of your organization? If the answer is yes, you need Tab Ignite. Our approach is unique, intelligent, and it works. Our solution is exclusively positioned to guarantee the results you seek for your business because we make it simple for you to tap our advisor's expertise and experience and make accurate business decisions. Ask Tab Ignite to work for you at tabignite at trustedadvisoryboard.com and make your next decision the first of many best decisions for your company. Do you believe in the value you bring to an organization? Have you been overlooked for a promotion because you think differently than your peers? Do you know that you can and will make a difference to the business? Let Tab Advanced be your personal advisory board and help you make different, better decisions about your career. 
Our team is customized to your successful advancement and hones in on when, why, and how you make those decisions. Build a more fulfilling career. Contact us today at advance at trustedadvisoryboard.com. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into Because There's More with host Laura Ellis. To connect with our program today, please send Laura an email to lellis at trustedadvisoryboard.com. Now, back to Because There's More. Hello, I'm Laura Ellis, and this is Because There's More, the show that takes a closer look at decision-making. I'm here today with Dr. Leanne Davey, who's an expert in helping teams become more effective in order to transform uh, the organization and themselves. And just before the break, we were talking about uh, uh, the main reasons that uh, Leanne went into this direction in helping teams. And we're also talking about the fact that she has written this amazing book that uh, was created around the programs or the other way around. She can tell us more. Um, So, Lian, tell us more um, about how did the uh, writing uh, process come about? I know that we're still working together and you are creating the programs and you're writing the book. Just few of the most memorable moments for people who <laughs> might be in the same situation. Yeah, actually, it's, a, it's an important story because it'll give people a sense of what the book is and what it isn't. So, uh, you know, as we talked about before, my full-time job is, is to take teams that have become dysfunctional and what I say metaphorically, sort of wheel them into the operating room, crack them open, and, and try to stop the bleeding. And uh, it's a very, very high-risk situation. By the time a team has reached that point, uh, it's, it's very likely that you know, one or more members of the team will end up leaving before you can really get the team back to health. There, the business has probably suffered considerably. Certainly, the employees have noticed um, the, you know, friction at the leadership team. So, at some point, I got frustrated with this and and really thought, just as you know, people who are, uh, you know, think about Dr. Oz as an example, you know, people who have seen uh, very, very sick people at some point want to get the message out much sooner, want to talk about healthy nutrition, <laughs> want to keep people healthy. That was how I experienced wanting to write the book. So the book is not about what to do. It's, it's not about the process I use with a team that's become toxic, but instead it's a, it's a book that any person can use. You don't have to lead your team. You just have to be a member of a team. And it's a process you can use to, you know, make your team better, uh, even without calling a consultant, even without needing uh, help from outside. So that was my idea was create a book that everyone could use if they have uh, struggles on their own team, that this book would help them to make things better. Um, so that's really what the book is about. And it, it was great fun to write. We, we did something crazy. We, um, um, you know, as I was starting to write it, uh, I said, you know, how fast can we possibly do this? And, and I put a, a date on it. I think it was the 1st of October when we were starting. We put a, a March 1st due date, and uh, the editor and, and uh, advisor I was working with said, 
you know, I don't think that's possible, but if anybody could do it, you could. And, and I wrote uh, a chapter a week for 13 weeks. Uh, I just didn't let myself go to bed on a Sunday night until the, the 6,000 words were, were finished and, uh, and got the book out. And I'm really proud of it. Good for you. And uh, you should be. It's an amazing book. Um, and, and I know that people have benefited from it. And, you know, it kind of reinforces uh, um, the message that I put out here because I, not every organization, not every um, professional has the uh, ability or can afford to work with a consultant. So I've created this radio show exactly for that reason. So people have a resource where they can um, uh, learn things or or hear some insights that leads them to better decisions in, in their business. And it's amazing. Uh, I'm very impressed by professionals like yourself who dedicate um, a part of their expertise to helping people whether or not they work with them directly. So that's very impressive, and I, I very much value um, that. Who is your target audience? And, and tell us more, um, who did you write the book for? When you? Yeah, so the, the book is really meant for, it, it doesn't matter um, what kind of a team you work on. So I've actually talked to people who have said, you know, the book really benefited them in uh, working on a volunteer team that they work on at their kid's school. So it, it doesn't have to be a, even a, a workplace team. So any level, any situation, if you work on a team, it's going to speak to you. And the people that it's really for are the people who understand that there are issues on their team, that it needs to be better, and that they all deserve to have a better experience on their team, but also the person who has the courage to admit that they play a role in uh, the dysfunction on the team and that their behavior actually uh, creates a huge opportunity to change things for the better. So it's funny, when I started talking about writing the book and I was speaking with my, uh, my editor, he said, what kind of book is it? And I said, it's a business self-help book. He said, there's no such thing as a business self-help book. I said, well, now there is. So that's what I like to call it. It's a, it's a business self-help book. Yes. And tell me about the title. So how did you come? Because I know that, you know, I haven't uh, written a book. But even when you write in, uh, a small article, the title is something very important. And I, knowing you, you would have given a lot of thought to every single word there. So how did yeah, the title absolutely. come about? Yeah, so the idea of the book is that each person on a team uh, plays a role in what's working or not working. So some people are just wicked, and their bad behavior is hurtful, destructive. Uh, some people are wounded, and actually in playing the victim uh, and the, the woe is me attitude, they're holding a team back. And then the vast majority of people just witness it all and they throw up their hands and they say, well, this isn't my bad behavior um, and, and don't do anything about it. So the, the book looks at whether you're the, the wicked, the wounded, or the witness, um, you can change the dynamic on your team because it is, it is just that. It's a dynamic and it takes all those roles to play out. Um, so you first was really the idea that if you go first, if you change yourself first, you can change your team. 
And then, of course, because of my because of my personality, I needed that subtitle because grow up is is something that I think so many people relate to on their teams. Uh, people act like children, um, self-centered, um, selfish children a lot of the time, and and a lot of what's required is simply for people to grow up and get along. And and finally, what it's all about is getting stuff done because you're in an organization to get something done, to accomplish things, and and teams are the way we get that done now. Uh, so if we're going to make the team machine work, then uh, we need to inspire a different kind of behavior. Um, you know, and, and I had to say stuff because I couldn't use the word that I probably would have chosen <laughs> if it wasn't the title of a book. Yeah. One <laughs> of the things that, uh, again, in, in listening to you, that, that comes to mind and, and, you know, in my perspective has to do with how we make decisions and how we see others versus ourselves, um, is that a lot of the time, even that growing up that you describe. Uh, we see it in others, but don't see that much in ourselves because we're not yeah, so absolutely. able to. Uh, what's your perspective? Yeah, I completely agree with you. Um, you know, we we just are wired as humans that, you know, when we get in a situation that we perceive as threatening to us, uh, we get uh, defensive, we become self-protective, and all sorts of ugly, uh, hurtful behavior comes out. Um, but, of course, when we're trying or we believe we're protecting ourselves, uh, we don't have a very high standard that we hold ourselves to. So, you know, in the second half of the book, I, I do a little thought experiment uh, for people about uh, so let me share. I think it works over the radio. So the idea is you're sitting at your desk and working away, having a perfectly good day when that little email alert pops up in the corner of your screen. And all you need to see is the name of the sender before you have a physiological reaction because that email is from, you know, that person, the one who uh, just always rubs you the wrong way that you, that you really don't have a positive relationship with. And you open the email and you read it and, and it says, I got the presentation you sent. I caught a couple of errors. I have some ideas for how to make it better and I'll come by your desk at three o'clock. And I ask audiences when I'm giving keynotes, you know, how do you feel when you get that email? And, you know, people have very personal and very different reactions, but they're all negative. So I feel defensive. I feel angry. I feel embarrassed. And most importantly, I feel a meeting outside the office coming on at three o'clock. I'm going to make myself scarce. But then I say, now imagine a completely different email. Uh, This time from the person who always has your back, the the confidant, that colleague you can always count on. And, uh, you know, you get that email alert in the bottom of your screen and you open it and it says, I got the draft presentation you sent. I caught a couple of errors. I have some ideas for how to make it better and I'll come by your office at three o'clock. And, uh, you know, without, without fail, when I ask the exact same audience, 30 seconds later, how do you react to that email? They say, I'm grateful that they caught the mistake before I showed my boss, or I'm interested, I'm curious, and I'm filling up the jujubes in the bowl on my desk for three o'clock. And that's a great example of how our decision-making is incredibly biased. So that 
very neutral email passes through our decision-making filters that are very messy and very clogged with past experience. And when we pass that through a filter that says, this person is out to get me and this person doesn't like me, that becomes a very negative email and one that will trigger a defensive reaction in us. That meeting at three o'clock is not going to go very well because our body language will be very close, will be very curt with the person. But when it goes through the decision-making filter filled with all sorts of positive, um, positive affect, positive emotions, and, and great warm, fuzzy memories, it says, oh, that was so kind of that person to invest their time in in making my presentation better. And the three o'clock meeting is just going to, you know, confirmation bias is going to kick in. We're we're just going to, wow, just more evidence of what a great colleague that is. So it it is very, very, very important that we take these uh, little tests and these ways of helping us become more aware of our biases and and aware of how those become self-fulfilling prophecies in, in our teams. Absolutely. And I couldn't thank you more for sharing that uh, example with people because there's so much involved in how we make decisions, uh, including the fact, and that's one of my one of my uh, pet peeves with having so many books out there. It's very hard for the audience to know which one is a good book, which one is going to help them, and which one is just going to go on a shelf and never, uh, ever be remembered. But in what you're saying, uh, it reminds me that, first of all, the best way for each one of us to learn is through our own experience. So while you may read something similar to what you said, going through what you shared with me and with the audience, it's what's going to make people really realize the importance of the feelings, our feelings in how we make decisions. So I wish I could put that up on the sky so everyone can experience it um, (laughs) every now and and again, just to remind themselves, you know. Yeah, it's really amazing. When I do that in front of big audiences, you just you hear a little bit of a gasp ripple through the audience because I'm not surprised. they suddenly become so aware of I do that. Oh my goodness, I really do do that. Yeah. And yeah. you know, I hope we'll each do person it. leaves that speech with you know with one person that they um, that, that they're going to go and make an effort to change that vicious cycle. Yeah, we all do it. it. It's amazing. And and I'm, you know, I was, um, uh, I'm working on creating like a five part mini YouTube video on decision making. And it's so hard for me to decide which one do I focus on in terms of uh, what's causing us biases. But our emotions, you know, the the part that uh, of our emotions that impacts our decision making, it's so huge. And, you know, especially you read a lot of books out there who um, invite you to follow your gut, which sometimes can be very bad and sometimes can be very good. But going back to what you said, thank you so much for sharing that exercise. I'm definitely going to tell as many people as I can about <laughs> it. Um Let's talk about the book. So um, I understand that it's kind of, uh, I would say, uh, is divided in two parts. So um, you, you talk about the toxic teams in the first 
part. Take us through it. As I said earlier, I love your your uh, terminology, the language that you <laughs> use, because you make it accessible. It doesn't feel like, oh, what does that mean? And even if people don't understand, the words you use are intriguing. So let you talk about it. Yeah, so the first half of the book really takes people through what goes wrong. Uh, and in each case, spells out uh, what does each toxic team look like, provides people with a little diagnostic to see if that's what's going on on their team, and then provides a little bit of first aid. <laughs> you know, what can you do? So let me take you through the five teams because it's kind Please. of fun. So uh, it's a continuum on which I classify these toxic teams. Let's start with the, the, the worst. So if you're, if you're thinking about toxicity, this is like the, the poison gas where you open the door to the room and you keel over. So, so there's a couple of teams that are like that. One I call the Royal Rumble team, and that's where it, it, it sometimes even is physically aggressive. I did once have to put myself physically in between two guys who stood up from the table and kind of went toward each other. And that's a team where IQ is much higher than EQ. And uh, I see this a lot in teams I work with in uh, Silicon Valley. Very, very smart people, very passionate about what they believe, uh, and not very good at understanding uh, how they're coming across, not very much in control sometimes of their um, their emotions, their aggression. And, and those are the things that, that fuel and fire a very competitive high-tech industry, but uh, can have a very um, deadening impact on, on the team. So that Royal Rumble team is one where you spend a lot more time arguing sort of black and white. So, so you spend all your energy going back and forth and very little of it moving forward. And uh, it's a very hurtful team for the people who become wounded by uh, an aggressor on the team and also for the people who have to experience it. I've seen a lot of turnover on these kinds of teams because eventually, particularly the witnesses say, it's not worth it. You know, I'm getting out of here. So that's one of the very toxic teams. The next one is what I call the crisis junkie team. And this is a team that has become incredibly ineffective uh, most of the time because there's misalignment, there's infighting, uh, but only gets things done when there's a crisis. So they leave things to the last minute. And when uh, the building is on fire, uh, then, you know, they figure it out. And I, I've seen a few teams like this. And really what it comes down to is that only in a crisis do people have role clarity, do they have resources prioritized around, uh, you know, what needs to be done, uh, is the politics and, and backstabbing you know, held to a minimum. So those crisis junkie teams that only get stuff done when there's a crisis is another common and, and severe problem on teams. So those are the two that are kind of obviously toxic that, that any of your listeners would, would know are toxic. The third one is quite interesting because it looks healthy from the surface. If you were to look through the window of a meeting room at the bleeding back team, uh, it, it might look fine. Everyone's nodding and, and sometimes smiling. But what you learn when you hang out at the water cooler is that there's a tremendous amount of passive aggressiveness going on on this team. So everybody, that's why I call it the bleeding back team is that, you know, you have to check your back occasionally for knives in there. Uh, and this is where there's, you know, there's this superficial level of agreement, but people uh, disagree afterwards, they reopen decisions, they fail to implement things. And that's really deadly because you, you end up not being able to trust anyone. You don't know what's real and what's not real. So that's a real problem. 
The last two are really interesting because many people wouldn't recognize them as toxic teams at all. In fact, I, you know, my, my sacrilegious statement here is that I believe a lot of employee surveys and our ability to tie employee surveys to a single manager are actually um, encouraging these two types of dysfunctional teams. So, so the first one is what I call the bobblehead team. You can imagine exactly why I call it that, because if you imagine a whole bunch of heads bobbing up and down, that's what our bobblehead team looks like. And everybody is just getting along and happy. And as the famous psychologist Gordon Allport said, when everyone thinks alike, no one thinks very much. And so these bobblehead teams are very susceptible to another critical decision-making error, which is groupthink. Um, no one is challenging, uh, you know, everybody, I tease that uh, these teams sound a little bit like family feud when, you know, dad gives a crazy answer to the question and everyone claps enthusiastically and yells, good answer, even though it was not a good answer at all. Um, that's what happens on a bobblehead team when we, when we get this dangerous group think, sinking in. And, you know, although the employee engagement survey may look very positive in a team like that, there's tremendous risks to the business, both in the fact that these teams are not likely to innovate or drive growth and also very unlikely to mitigate risks well. So it's a, a real one for people to be aware of. And the final one is the spectator team. And, and many people probably relate to this one. This is the team where everybody comes in and, and gives their little book report out to the team leader. Uh, and, and when someone else is talking, you're on your phone and, and doing something else because it really has no bearing on you or your job. So really, it's just a series of one-on-one meetings held with the boss just at the same time. So that's another one that's it's a tremendous suck of energy out of the organization. It's probably why we have way too many hours in meetings uh, because we're all just sort of workshopping each other's jobs, sitting around in a room together, uh, but not adding any value, just really being spectators for other people doing their jobs. So we have very extremely toxic situations like the crisis junkies or the Royal Rumble team. Um, We have this insipid uh, passive-aggressive team. uh, And then we have a couple of teams that might look fine on the surface, but actually have significant cost to the organization and to the individuals on the team because they're not actually creating a whole greater than the sum of the parts. Fascinating, Leanne. Just for uh, me and the audience, how would you describe the, and I'm going to go back to the teams that you uh, described here, but what would a good team look like? And how often do you come across uh, organizations that actually um, call you in because they're already an amazing team? And uh, there's about 20 questions I want to ask around that. So let me start with the first one. How do you describe the uh, good team? Yeah, so a good team has uh, real clarity about what their purpose is. So they understand Um, what they're trying to create for the customer. And I don't mean internal customer by that. I mean, how does this team create value for the external customer? They have an understanding of how the world is changing and how some of those, so, you know, as we talked about at the beginning of the show, how, you know, those small disruptors are changing their role in, in the company, what they need to do differently because of, Uh, all the changes in our world, increasing regulation, changes in the power of consumers, those sorts of things. (coughs) Sorry. Um, 
So they have very strong alignment right down to understanding where their roles are supposed to be in tension with one another, where having some conflict is a positive thing. So great teams have really good alignment all the way from the customer to an individual's unique contribution to the team. And the second half of the equation is that they have a constructive team dynamic that's based on trust. So trust is the most fundamental layer, but that trust supports effective communication, more conflict, uh, those sorts of things. <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to keep asking questions while you have some water because I've been uh making you talk but it's so interesting to uh to listen to you because in just in how you describe those teams it makes me feel that perhaps I don't know probably most of the organizations that I've interacted uh, interacted with um have a lot of the challenges that don't appear as challenges. It's obvious when people argue all the time, when uh, when they don't meet, or it's very obvious, but it's that bobblehead and spectator uh, and bleeding back team, all of those that I, I think they're so uh, pervasive in, in today's organizations and probably one of the many reasons that, as you said, uh, uh, especially large organizations, and struggle with um, innovation and, and uh, progressing, you know, obviously, because they're just not challenging themselves enough, not trusting uh, themselves enough. Have you noticed that, um, have you noticed a trend from an organization size perspective or industry? Um, are good teams more likely to um, exist in, I don't know, in technology companies or in small to medium sizes or not necessarily any trend? Yeah, I haven't really noticed a trend from that perspective. I think one of the things that's interesting is that it takes time uh, to develop trust, to create a connection with uh, the people on your team. And unfortunately, in so many large organizations now, people are coming and going in teams like through the turnstiles. So, you know, I have one team that I work with. Uh, they're, they, you know, they started out as quite a dysfunctional team. And I started working with them about three years ago. And they did call me because things were toxic, which is very rare. Um, and, you know, I would say there are now on a team of 12 there's a new leader, and I would say two of the 12 team members are the same as they were three years ago. In a couple of the roles, those people have changed out a couple of times in three years. So there's every quarter, there's at least one new member of that team. And the challenge in that case is that it's just impossible to settle into uh, a healthy dynamic, to have the level of trust and, and confidence in one another. And, and that doesn't necessarily mean people are with, withholding trust. It, it just means that you don't even know how the person likes to work. They're figuring out the new team leader. They're figuring out, you know, is it okay for me to disagree in, in public in a meeting? And so everything is tentative and a little bit slow. So sometimes in the organizations that are a little smaller, um, have less turnover on the teams, that really contributes to people developing some trust. If we get to a team that's been together too long, 
then we get into that bobblehead concern uh, that they think too much alike, there's too much homogeneity on the team. So, you know, there's a happy medium, but unfortunately, teams that have new members every quarter are really going to struggle to click into a healthy dynamic. Very interesting. And just for because I want to talk uh, about your organization and the process that you take your clients through, um, can you identify a couple of tactics that you have uh, developed for people to use almost across the different kind of uh, toxic teams, anything that you can share? Yeah, my, my favorite story is one that I've been sharing, which is a tool we help people use to, uh, to describe what healthy conflict should look like on their team. Um, so the story comes from uh, a camping trip I took with my family. And this was a camping trip where we, we learned there was going to be a big rainstorm. So we drove into town to buy a big tarp that we could use to, to cover our tent. But unfortunately, all that was left was a little tarp that was barely going to cover the tent. So what we did is we, we laid out the tarp and had each member of our four-person family, uh, you know, pulling on one corner of the tarp. And uh, so I, I always stop here and I say, now, you know, we use all these metaphors in teams about uh, rowing. You know, we're all pulling in the same direction. We have those cheesy posters on the walls that show these rowers and, and say teamwork in big letters. And I say, you know, this tarp is a better metaphor for the team. So you know, when we were actually trying to spread out that tarp to cover our tent, we weren't pulling in the same direction. In fact, the only way we could optimize the ground we covered was to pull in different directions. And that's very much what a team is like. But like a team, if any one member of the family, and I'm only speaking hypothetically here, was Sorry. to pull too hard on their corner of the tarp, not only would they send somebody flying and rip the grommet out of the corner of the tarp, but they would pull the whole thing off of center and it wouldn't cover the tent anymore. And that happens on our teams all the time. Somebody who has a louder voice, somebody who's more articulate, somebody who's more aggressive actually pulls the whole thing off center. You know, sometimes the sales function will, um, you know, have a uh, more weight in the room and, you know, take an entire decision off of what's optimal because they can lobby more effectively or more loudly. But at the same time, if, if one member of the team, and in my hypothetical family example here, uh, for example, my nine-year-old daughter at the time got, you know, fed up and threw up her hands and let go of her corner of the tarp, similarly, then, you know, we leave part of the tent exposed. And the same thing happens on teams all the time, where a person who is quieter, who is less comfortable, uh, you know, dissenting in the conversation, uh, or just gets fed up, stops advocating from their role, stops sharing their unique value, and there's exposure. There's part of the issue that's left uncovered. So we've created a tool that helps people sort of think about, you know, their corner of the tarp or the, the rope that they're pulling on, and we go through with the team and actually help them map out, you know, what is the unique value of each team member? How do those different perspectives come into tension with one another? How are they supposed to come into tension with one another? And that really helps teams to, to know their obligation to disagreement uh, and to understand in the moment that I need to have this uncomfortable conversation because if I don't, no one else is pulling on this rope uh, and, and we will not optimize the ground we cover unless, unless I do. So that's a fun tool. People love the story. 
And people can suddenly envision that it's true. You can't uh, cover uh, the most ground unless each person is pulling in a slightly different direction. So it's been uh, really useful for people to normalize and understand that conflict and tension are of a part of a healthy team. And what I love about that, and and let me tell you, I'm so glad that I didn't use uh, a picture of a rowing team on my website because the very (laughs) beginning I thought I would. But what I love about uh, your um, uh, metaphor, and I couldn't agree more with the fact that it's much better than the rowing team because uh, in the same direction, because it kind of, now that I think about it, the other uh, metaphor creates a sense of compliance and everyone has to be the same, which is in fact, uh, exactly uh, your point that everyone has a role and has to challenge the other one and sometimes it's important that we pull in different directions but I'm going to let the audience buy the book which they can find on Amazon and uh, where else can they find it because I want to talk about your um, your company so um, all this information is on the website on the show's website tell me about your organization today and tell me about the name how that can Just quick before I do that, I I will say that I have a contest going that if somebody sends me posts on social media, a picture of them taking down that rowers poster in their office, I send them a prize. (laughs) So if any of your listeners want to do that, I've I've sent a few prizes out of people sending pictures of their team taking those rowers posters down. Um, Okay, so let's talk about Three Co's. So um, Three Co's is an organization that my husband and I created with this very clear mission, which is to radically change the way people communicate, connect, and contribute so they can achieve amazing things together. So we knew that we wanted to help teams accomplish more impressive and more valuable things. And and we do that both in teams and organizations. But as you mentioned at the outset, we also provide some uh, charitable donations of our time to help teams doing amazing things in our community. Um, And so when we were trying to come up with a name, after much frustration, uh, I finally just said to Craig, you know, I want a name that really plays off the idea that it's these three co's, communicate, connect, and contribute. And he said, well, how about three co's? So that's where three co's comes from. It's very simple. But uh, on our website, which is um, 3coze.com, there are many, 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 many free resources that uh, your listeners can, can use. Uh, you'll see stories like the TARP story. Uh, you'll you'll find tips on how to have better conflict, lots of information around uh, team decision-making, those sorts of things. So I encourage people to, uh, to take advantage of those free resources because if we believe in changing the world one team at a time, we decided we needed to be willing to, uh, to give that away for free. That's that's amazing, and and it makes so much more sense now. I thought it was very interesting name, but I couldn't wait to learn more about it, uh, because, as I said earlier, I know that you would have given a lot of thought to how you uh, you came about. So we only have three minutes till the close of the show, and um, I am repeating myself. There's so much more that I would like to talk to you about, and and in fact, later on. Um, I'm planning to do those uh, YouTube videos uh, based or inspired by each different show. So you and I will have an opportunity to collaborate again, this time in a visual uh, way. But um, if there was something that you wanted to leave the audience with, what would that be? 
I think it's that original message that, that, you know, why is my book called You First? Uh, I would love to leave the audience with the message that you deserve to be on a great team. And the good news is you can change your team for the better by changing yourself. And the second half of the book, we didn't have time to go into it, but it goes through the five things that you can do differently that will dramatically change your team by inspiring your teammates. Um, You taking the high road, you doing some things differently will actually make it incredibly difficult for other people on your team to continue behaving badly. So the good news is that you play a role in changing your team for the better. And even in those crisis junkie teams and bleeding back teams, there's advice in the book. Even if your team leader doesn't want to make it better, even if your teammates aren't interested, you know, what can you do even if you have to go it alone to make things better on your team? So uh, the, the last thing I would say is there's also advice in the book, as I say, if you can't make a dent in the team issues on your team, there's some advice to make sure it makes a smaller dent in you. So that's yeah. another important message. And I think it's important because even if you can't change the team you're part of today, you're going to change yourself in a way that it's going to show later in your career and for your business. Leanne, thank you so much. As I expected, it was an amazing uh, show for me. I've learned so much. I hope my audience does too. And I wish you best of luck. And hopefully we'll have you back on the show to talk about the second part of the book (laughs) and more of the work you do. I I hope you enjoyed it. Thanks so much, Laura. It's my pleasure. Take care. Have a great week, everyone. We'll be back next Monday. We hope you've enjoyed this week's edition of Because There's More. Join Laura Ellis again next Monday at 6 a.m. Pacific Time, 9 a.m. Eastern Time, and 2 p.m. GMT on the Voice America Business Channel. Be sure to tune in because there's more. Thank you.